Please open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter chapter 5. By the way, those of you back from, for Thanksgiving, it's great to see all of you guys. It's good to have this nice cold Sunday together. Hopefully you're enjoying that brisk air out there. Hopefully you have great plans this week with family and friends, but it's good to see you guys. 1 Peter 5, this, Lord willing, is the second to last message in our study of 1 Peter that we've been in for well over a year. And and, uh, so this I've entitled God's Blueprint for Protection, and this is part two we began last time. Listen to the text as I read it, beginning in verse 5. You younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders, and all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, for God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. Be of sober spirit, be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. But resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. Lions are extremely powerful creatures. Listen to some of these statistics about Lions. The lion bite force, so the way which he chomps down, like you chomp down on your food, is 650 psi, four times stronger than the average human, although some of you probably bite down a little harder. Adult lion teeth size is uh, 3.2 to 4 inches long, humongous teeth. The paw swipe force, so Coming across, it can generate up to 1,400 pounds of force, enough to kill a bear with one swipe. And its front paws have retractable claws that can measure up to 3.5 inches in length. The average adult lion paw size is approximately five to five and a half inches. Its weight ranges from 90 pounds, a very small miniature lion, to 550 pounds. They can run up to 50 miles an hour. They can carry up to 1,000 pounds. And they're very cunning creatures. Some lions have been observed licking live animals, possibly due to something called practice killing, which is calming down the prey, or it's also used as a strategy to call in a parent for a larger kill. They are very impressive and strong animals. However, it is that cunning and that craftiness of the lion that I want to zero in on here for a second. Listen to a few more stats related to the craftiness of a lion in regard to how it hunts its prey. These statistics come from a website called Snow Africa Adventures. First, lions progress toward their prey in stealthy footsteps. I think you know that if you've watched anything with lions, if you've watched any kind of National Geographic thing, you see how they're very stealthy in the high, high weeds. Known as the king of the beasts, lions' hunting strategies are calculated and unique. Mostly the lion attacks are the bigger prey. They attack bigger prey like cape buffalo, zebras, giraffes, and they do it in groups. They stay hidden in the grass and they, they let the prey come close. They make a very stealthy and slow movement then toward their prey. And after getting close to a cacheable distance, they charge upon the prey quickly. They make the prey paralyzed. Lions bite the back and the nose and they break their windpipe after the attack. Brutal. Second statistic is that they are extremely patient when it comes to the hunt. Lions have the experience to to keep their patience because most of their prey has a a better speed than they do. They're faster. 
During the hunt, they stay hidden in the grass without any little movement and wait for a long time for the prey to come closer. Any little movement can ruin their plan. Sometimes they have to wait several hours to hunt a single prey, which shows that they are extremely patient when it comes to feeding on them. And once the prey gets closer, lions attack the prey which it has hunted. The third stat is that lions follow a different hunting pattern for different animals. This was very interesting. Lion hunting strategy is different according to the size, strength, and aggressiveness of the prey. Lions use a cooperative strategy for for big animals. While attacking zebras or cape buffaloes or wildebeest, they first encircle or cover the herd from all sides. After they get closer, they charge in upon the group. Mostly lions prefer, however, to attack the weaker, older ones and the calves for a better conversion. While attacking small animals, the lion hides in the grass, maintaining a low profile. With slow and intended movements, the lion captures the prey. And for smaller prey, most of the time, they just go for the straightforward chase and hunt down strategy. As you hear these things... Hopefully you are struck with why Peter calls Satan a roaring lion in our text. Satan is extremely strong. He is very stealthy. In fact, Paul says that he disguises himself as an angel of light. He is very patient, strategically planning and orchestrating to the extent of his ability. He's not sovereign in any stretch of the imagination, but he does have a a very vast knowledge of things. And so strategically planning and orchestrating to the extent of his ability, the times that he is going to strike. He is very smart. And just like the lion, he studies his prey and learns what the best method of attack will be, and then he seeks to devour them. And friends... You and I, as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, are that prey that Satan is seeking to devour. He is seeking to bring persecution from from every angle to believers across the world, tempting them to capitulate in their faith, and he is seeking to bring every other possible temptation into our lives in order to entangle us in sin and hopefully cause us to deny the faith. And as a result of this reality, Peter gives us five instructions in verses 5 through 9, which provide protection for God's people in the crosshairs of satanic assault. We learned about the first two last time. In verse 5, Peter commanded the young men to submit to their elders. As I stated last time, submission brings protection from Satan's assaults because it involves you having to trust the ones you are submitting to to care for you instead of relying upon your own, your own impulses. We talked about the danger of relying upon your, your own impulses and your own feelings and every whimsical thing that you think should happen. And then in the second half of verse 5 through verse 7, Peter gives a second instruction, command, which is to humble yourselves. And we saw that we must clothe ourselves in humility Toward one another, and we must humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. Humility protects us because it keeps your heart from self exaltation toward others and toward God, which is the opposite of what Satan is promoting, which is pride and arrogance. And so we need that protection of of humility that comes from us exerting effort to, to bring humility into our lives by the power of the Holy Spirit. This leads us to our study this morning in verses 8 and 9 where we find the final three instructions which provide protection for God's people in the crosshairs of satanic assault. The third instruction is found there in verse 8 and it is this, it is to control your thoughts. Control your thoughts. So you humble, you, you submit to elders, you humble yourselves and third, you control your thoughts. Look at the beginning of verse 8. It says, be of sober spirit. 
This command is paired with the one right after it, and you see that there in verse five, in verse eight, rather. Be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Both of these commands alert us to the present danger that Satan poses to God's people. And both of these commands taken together are instructing watchfulness. Hebert, in his commentary, connects this command back to what Peter was instructing in the previous verse when he says this. He says, worry is condemned, but watchfulness is demanded. I love that. And such a great hinge from verse 7 to verse 8. As we ended last time talking about the reality that one of the ways that we humble ourselves before God is that we trust God. And one of the manifestations, the expressions of that trust is casting all of our cares upon God. Why? Because he cares for us. And so in that, we see that we are to cast our cares upon God, and that is the antidote to worry. And so worry is condemned. It's, it's condemned throughout the scriptures in its entirety. And so I love that statement. It's, worry is condemned, but then moving to verse 8, watchfulness, however, is demanded. We're not to worry about our present circumstances, about the attacks that Satan is bringing upon us, about the potential attacks that might come our way, but rather we are to be watchful. However, when you look at these two commands, being sober in spirit and being on the alert, they're also distinct. So they're taken together in terms of being watchful, but they're also distinct. To be of sober spirit is defined as being free from every form of mental or spiritual drunkenness. It is to be well-balanced, self-controlled in all circumstances. One commentator defined being sober in spirit as consistent balance in disposition, thoughts, and action. Consistent balance in disposition, the way you look, your thoughts, and your actions. Calm and collected in spirit. It is to be circumspect and, and careful with your life. And the reality is that all of this must begin where? In your thoughts. If your life is going to be self-controlled, it will only be a result of your thoughts being balanced and themselves self-controlled. And there are several ways to obey this command and thus protect yourself from Satan's schemes. Being sober in spirit begins with intentionally setting your mind upon the things of God and intentionally seeking to put the flesh to death. It begins with intentionally setting your mind on the things of God and intentionally seeking to put the flesh to death. Romans 12.2 says, Do not be conformed to this world. Rather, be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove that which is good and acceptable, the perfect will of God. Colossians 3.5 commands us to put to death that flesh which remains. Right, That earthly residue that remains in our lives. If you are going to be someone who is, who is sober in spirit, you are going to be one who is doing that, who is not conforming your mind to the pattern of this world, but you are being transformed by the renewing of your mind in the word of God. Being transformed is that continual process. The word is, we get our word metamorphosis from, from the word being transformed there in that, in that text. And you know that process in scientifically when the caterpillar becomes the butterfly, the transition, that whole thing, how all of that works, that is our mind is this continual process, just this continual transformation. So it produces a mind that is, that is biblical, a mind that is set upon the things of God, a mind that that when something comes their way, when, when something starts to face a person, when some sort of trial or difficulty or suffering or persecution or temptation, whatever it may be, whenever that comes, their mind immediately doesn't go to some other way to deal with this or some, some other means to try and soothe the pain from this. It's a mind that goes to thinking very biblically and strategically about how to deal with it. 
It's not a mind that gets worried. It's not getting worried when you're being attacked by something. That can be easy to do. My sons play basketball. And one of my sons is a point guard. If you know anything about basketball, a point guard has to be in control of the game. They're bringing the ball down. They're making good decisions, whether to pass, whether to drive, whatever it may be. And he's had this habit lately as these teams have been pressing them, full court press. They throw the ball and the teams are there. And, and he's picking up his dribble too early. And he's getting caught back where he shouldn't get caught. And he's having to make a quick decision and he's panicking. And, and it's a very clear thing that, that we've been trying to work on. But, but that's what you don't do when you are being attacked by saying, you, you don't just start freaking out and panicking and worrying about what's going on. I mean, we can look at this world and see everything that's happening in our world and everything that's happening to Christians, and we can begin to panic. We can begin to worry. We have to go back and remember that we must humble ourselves and cast all our cares upon God. We're not going to worry about this, but, but we are going to intentionally be sober-minded about it. We're going to be careful. We're going to think very strategically. We're going to be calm. We're going to be collected. Transforming our mind and the Word of God helps us to do that. To be sober in spirit is not to allow yourself to become allured by the world. It's not become allured by its materialism, by its empty promises of fulfillment, by its philosophy that is just inundating us. Because the world's materialism, its empty promises of fulfillment, and its philosophy is evil. It's opposed to God. It's against God. And those things which are against God are things that we are to be against as his people. And so to be sober in spirit is to... Is to Push back against that allurement, to fight against being allured by those things so that you get entrapped in those things. So then you become a sitting duck for the devil to attack. The allurement of the world is a trap. It's like the bait and switch of a fish hook. Fish want to go get that food, they're hungry, and they bite very hard on that, and all of a sudden they're hooked in the face going right through the lip. Can you imagine that? That would hurt so bad. But, but they're trapped. They're, that's it. It's over for them. They're going to be reeled into the boat. That's, that's how the world works. It's a bait and switch. Look at all of these wonderful things you can have. Just think about Satan with Christ in the wilderness. What was the second temptation that he gave to Christ? He said, hey, look at, at all of the Empires of the world, these are yours if you bow your knee and worship. That's the same temptation that we deal with day in and day out. Look at all of this. You can have all of this. You can have all of this fleshly fulfillment. But it's a bait and switch. You bite into that, so to speak, and you're going to get hooked. And you're going to be drugged downward, and you're going to be destroyed. Because that's the end result of the world. To be sober in spirit is to not allow yourself to be controlled by your flesh. An impulsive person is not a self-controlled person. If you can look at your life and identify areas of impulsiveness in your thoughts, in your responses, in your reactions, in your decisions, in your purchases, you are lacking the sobriety and spirit that Peter is commanding, and you are vulnerable to the enemy's attack. He is commanding this life of self-control, this life that is controlled by the Spirit of God. It's not controlled by your flesh. It's not controlled by your whims. It's not controlled by your feelings. It's not controlled by your desires. To be sober in spirit is to be disciplined in your thoughts and in your life habits. 
Listen, being sober in spirit protects you from Satan's assault by creating a spiritual barrier that doesn't allow those fiery arrows to get through. Right? When you set up a life of self-control that begins in your thoughts and then works itself out in every area of your life, you are creating like this force shield, so to speak. Not that you won't have to deal with temptation, not that it won't be there, but there is this life of self-control that when Satan begins to attack from whatever angle he's going to attack, whether it's the persecution that Peter's talking about here in this text of these believers who are under attack, whether it's the temptations, there's a plethora of them in this life. Regardless of what it is, when those things come, when those fiery arrows come, they're going to have a very, very difficult time penetrating that. It's a key point of protection in the life of a Christian from satanic assault. Controlling your thoughts and your emotions by fixating your mind upon Christ through his word and by training yourself to think biblically is a massive wall of protection. Listen, one of the main reasons young people struggle with so many things and and a lot of them fall into various patterns of sin is because they refuse to embrace this truth. You have to embrace the truth that what you think about matters. That your mind must be fixated upon the truth. It must not be fixated upon the world's philosophies. If it is, you are vulnerable and you will fall. It's so important that you train yourself to think biblically. Because when you are in the fire of persecution or trials or suffering or temptation, if your thoughts in those moments are impulsive and whimsical and not controlled by the scriptures, you are going to be tossed to and fro in your faith and you are going to be vulnerable to shipwreck. That's how it works. And as this cunning, crafty lion who is roaring with his temptation and his assaults comes at you and is doing it very strategically, very calm and collected himself before he prounces or pounces on you. If you are not doing this, you are vulnerable to that massive attack. If you are attacked by the enemy and you want to seek revenge on those he uses to attack you, you're not sober in spirit. That's directly related to our text. One who is sober in spirit in the midst of assault is one who is sanctifying Christ as Lord in their hearts and seeking to provide an answer for the hope which they have. One who is sober in spirit is one who will not crumble when life crumbles around them. But not only must we control our thoughts, believers, fourth, we must keep on guard. Keep on guard. You see that in the parallel command there in verse 8. He says, be on the alert. Your mind must be self-controlled, and you must be in constant readiness and watchfulness, preparing for the next attack. To be on the alert is defined by one commentator as being wakefully active morally and spiritually against the assaults of Satan. Being wakefully active. You, you are ready. You're actively ready. Both morally and spiritually against the assaults of Satan. It is, it is to keep your eyes open, so to speak. And your head on a swivel. That's what they tell soldiers in training. Right? When you're out there in the battlefield, you keep your head on a swivel. Those attacks are going to come from every single angle. There's snipers set in place. There's, there's people coming out of different villages and different things. You have to keep your head on a swivel. You have to be ready for the attack that's going to come. That's what, Paul, that's what Peter is telling us right here. Listen, believer, keep your head on a swivel. 
Satan's not going to attack you in the way that you think, necessarily. He will at times. But he is learning you. You understand that. He is, he is studying you. He doesn't have omniscience. He doesn't know all things. But he is looking at your life day in and day out through his, through his massive unit of demons, of fallen angels that he has dispersed throughout the world. And he is learning you. He's studying every detail about your life for the purpose of looking at an angle in which he can approach you and overtake you. Therefore, Peter says, be on the alert. Keep your eyes open. Keep your head on a swivel. Don't, don't, don't think you can sleep. No, don't think you can just live this simple, easy life, your best life now, right? Disney World for us. No, it's not it. You're in a battle, you're in a war. You're constantly ready. That's what Peter says. Consider for a moment the one who was giving this command to believers. It was Peter. We love Peter, okay? We learn so much from him. He had failed miserably at remaining alert in the events leading up to Jesus' arrest. Didn't he? I referenced this in the wedding I did yesterday, but Jesus was in the garden of Gethsemane. And he had his disciples with him, but his inner three were kind of in there closer with him. And he said, stay over here. I'm going to go over here and pray. And he comes back several times. And what were they doing? They were asleep. What does Jesus say? Watch and pray. Watch and pray. Watch and pray. That was his command over and over again. Peter didn't do that. What were, what were they to be praying for? They were to be praying for their faith. They were to be praying for their protection. Things were about to get very rocky for them. They were about to watch their leader, this man who they had come to love, who, who they had come to identify as the son of God, this one who they thought was going to destroy the Roman Empire and set up his kingdom at that point. They thought they were going to become rulers with him at that time. And Jesus told them that the last year of his ministry, he said, listen, I'm going to the cross. Going to the cross. Peter at one point even said, Lord, what are you talking about? Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. You're not thinking about the things of God. You're thinking about the things of man. So, this is what they thought was going to happen, and things were about to get terrible. Their world was about to be destroy, destroyed. Their, the rug was about to get ripped out from under them. So Jesus said, you got to pray. got to pray. So much for us to learn just in that reality, right? You want to be on the alert, you got to pray. Peter didn't. A few hours later after Jesus' arrest, there Peter was set up, right? Like he had a softball. I get to proclaim Christ right here, although I know some of you can't hit a softball. But it's a story for another time. But it was like a softball right there. All they had to do was swing the bat, Peter, and he was going to proclaim Christ to these people right there. And what does he do? Three times. I don't know that man. What are you talking about? I know nothing of that man. Well, how do you think he came to that point? Peter was a bold guy. He wasn't on the alert. His head wasn't on a swivel. He wasn't watching and praying. His, he had his faith shaken. He had succumbed to the assaults of the devil. But listen, at this point where he's writing, think about the encouragement of these believers. He had been restored by Christ. And now he knew exactly how to encourage these believers moving forward. This isn't some random guy telling us to be alert. There's this devil out there. This is a man who had been in the throes of his assaults, who had been attacked, who had lost. And he was saying, listen, this is real. You must be on the alert. 
As we think about this command to be on the alert, Peter is not telling us to go through life in a paranoid or suspicious manner. Right? You know, the, the Kramer philosophy, if you ever saw that show. <laughs> Guy walking in a room, throwing his head around. That's not, that's not us as Christians. Shouldn't be anyways. And oh, there's no salt over here, there's no salt over here, there's no salt over here. It's not that kind of mentality. Rather, he's instructing us to understand the reality that we are in a war with a very real, deceptive, and deadly enemy. We are to be ready by becoming very familiar with his schemes and strategies, which he's described here in the rest of this verse as this roaring lion seeking whom may devour. We are to be on the alert because there is an enemy that is seeking to destroy us. That's what Peter is saying. Look at the text. He says, Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Your adversary, that is to say, the believer's adversary, the believer's accuser is the word here. If you are in Christ, Satan is your enemy. He is your adversary. He is your accuser. Revelation tells us that he accuses the brethren day and night. Satan is not your friend. He is the devil. He is the slanderer, the text says. And and the world is where he carries out his vicious strategic attacks. This one, your adversary, the devil, the text says, prowls around like one who is on the hunt, like like a roaring lion. He is ferociously seeking to cause fear. And and specifically here, persecution is his roar. He wants to cause believers to capitulate in their faith because of their suffering. That's his goal. They have enough pressure, enough suffering. There's enough attack that they say, that's it, I'm out. Perhaps you've known people like that. They've gone through a really difficult season in life. And they say, you know what? I'm out. I'm out. Deny the faith. Deny God. Maybe turn and become atheistic in their thoughts. Maybe you've been tempted to this at times. That's what he wants. He wants them to capitulate in their faith because of their suffering. He is seeking to devour those who are not keeping watch, those who have their guard down. Satan's goal is to get believers to deny Christ. It's to get the believers to not stand till the end. His ultimate goal is to destroy believers. If he could destroy every single one of us, if God would take back his restraint and his protection and Satan could destroy every single one of us, he would do it in a moment. It's what he wants. It's his goal. But take heart, friends. Satan might be your accuser, but Christ is your advocate. Not only that, he is your protector. And he is sovereign. And he is omniscient. And not only that, he's he's omnipotent. The power of Satan is vast, but it doesn't hold a candle to the power of Christ. There's no comparison. There's an infinite difference in the power of Satan to the power of Christ. That's how powerful your advocate is. That's how powerful your Savior is, your protector. You have him, and you can withstand his assaults, his attacks. I love the statement that Schreiner makes concerning this text. It's so encouraging. He says, The roaring of the devil is the crazed anger of a defeated enemy. And if they do not fear his ferocious bark, they will never be consumed by his bite. That's what Peter is telling us here. Be on the alert. 
Don't get overwhelmed by this roaring lion. Stay the course. Keep going. Stand your ground. Stand your faith. He's not going to devour you. Before we look at the final instruction that Peter gives, which is the antidote to this crazed, roaring devil, I want to take a moment and point out some of Satan's most common tactics and schemes that we need to be alert to. You'll identify with these, no doubt. It's no, no, by no means an exhaustive list. That's not my point. Some of these things, I think, are very pertinent to, to us. Some of these temptations, the way this guy is learning us and haunting, hunting us, seeking to attack. First of all, isolation. Isolation. Just like a lion wants to isolate their creatures and attack them, Satan breeds <laughs> His breeding ground is the isolation of people. When they step outside of their, uh, their group, of their people, God's people, when they begin to live life on their own, when they step outside of that purview of the elders, when they think, I don't need to be humble and trust the Lord as much. I, I can do this on my own. I've got this. When their guard is down, when their thoughts are whatever they want them to be, whimsical, they isolate. Some of you have been tempted towards this. Some of you have fought against this. No doubt many of you know people who think this way. If you isolate, Satan's coming. Second one would be overemphasis on feelings. Being a feelings-driven person is a crafty, cunning way that the deceiver seeks to mess up your life. Jerry Bridges commented about this in his book, the pursuit of holiness, when he said, while our God most often appeals to our wills through our reason, sin and Satan usually appeal to us through our desires. Or the thing that we think at times, this sin isn't so bad. This sin isn't so bad. That sin, that sin is bad. This sin not as bad. We justify it. We figure out a way to say, I mean, that is awful. And we point to that. I mean, that is terrible. Stay away from that. We warn other people. Like, talk about that. This sin? Ah, this one's okay. This one's not too bad. Words from the Puritan Richard Baxter are fitting here. He said in his book, The Reformed Pastor, he said, sin dwells in hell and holiness in heaven. Remember that every temptation is from the devil to make you like himself. Remember when you sin, that you are learning and imitating of the devil and are so far like him. And the end of all is that you may feel his pains. If hellfire be not good, then sin is not good. That includes that sin, and that includes this sin. Or that temptation that says, it's that temptation that, that, that has those idols that, that coddle our flesh. right? Those, those idols that make our flesh feel good, whatever those idols may be. Satan loves to work in those ways to to seek to build up those idols in our lives that we might fall down and worship those idols because why? Because they gratify our flesh. Or the scheme of compromise. Scheme of compromise. Oh, it's just that's a tiny little thing. Don't worry about that. You're not getting off course there. Oh. 
Listen, when a person falls, you know this. It's only a result of a number of different compromises. It's just a pattern or series of compromises that leads a person to falling off the cliff. You're never going to fall off a cliff if you're not making steps towards that cliff. Compromise are those steps. Complacency. It's that lack of sober-mindedness. Satan loves this. He loves us to be complacent about our faith. Yeah, I go to church. I, I'm a part of all these different wonderful things. I, I have these ministries I'm involved in. But, but is your heart there? Is your heart engaged in the worship of Jesus Christ? In your heart, are you bowing down before your king and saying, this life is yours? Is that where you're at? We get so complacent in our routines, in our things that we do, and all of these things are good and we should do them. And, and the Lord uses these things as means of grace to keep us from complacency, but we can become complacent even as good, church-going Christian people. Spiritual laziness. Those spiritual disciplines that God has laid out in his word. These are the means of grace. Your devotion to him through the scriptures and prayer, corporate worship and fellowship, baptism in the Lord's Supper, These wonderful means, these spiritual disciplines that sometimes we don't feel like doing because of our flesh. But they're disciplines that we do, we're consistent in. Why? To avoid spiritual laziness. Because a spiritual, lazy Christian is not a watchful Christian. And they are vulnerable. Worldly pleasures, fortune, and fame. Satan's going to use that constantly and consistently. Don't be driven in your life by money, by power, or by fame. Don't be driven by that. That's Satan's schemes. J.C. Ryle, in his most helpful book, Holiness, says, the devil is always going about as a lion seeking whom he may devour. An unseen enemy, he is always near us, about our path and about our bed, and spying out all our ways. A murderer and a liar from the beginning, he labors night and day to cast us down to hell, sometimes by leading into superstition, sometimes by suggesting infidelity, sometimes by one kind of tactics or sometimes by another. He is always carrying out on a campaign against our souls. The strong man armed will never be kept out of our hearts without a daily battle. As you think about these various temptations, you think about the assaults that come from persecution and suffering. It's not a one-time opposition to the devil. It is a constant, consistent, daily battle. That's why that verb in Colossians 3, 5 is in the present tense. You are putting to death daily that sin which remains. Moment by moment, as it lurks its head, and it will continually, day by day, sometimes hour by hour, depending on what it is. You are continually fighting against that. You're continually alert to that. You must be on guard and self-controlled in regard to these schemes. I highly recommend that you purchase and read the Puritan paperback, Temptation by John Owen. And if you're like me, you like the abridged versions so that you don't have to look up every other word. And that's by Richard Rushing. It's super accessible. It is a life-changing book. His wisdom is extremely helpful and nourishing to the soul regarding this issue, just opening up your world to these schemes. Because the more we understand them, the more we are alert to them and the more consistent we're going to be to live for the glory of Christ. 
and the fight against the assaults. Well, this leads us into the final instruction that Peter gives us to heed for our protection, which is this. Find it in verse 9. But resist the devil. Resist the devil. This is that final instruction. As I said a moment ago, this is the antidote to the fearful roar of the devil. You resist the devil. To resist the devil is to actively oppose him and his schemes. It is defined as an active engagement against the foe. To resist the devil encapsulates the four former instructions. To resist him is to submit to your elders. To resist him is to humble yourselves. To resist him is to control your thoughts. To resist him is to keep on guard. How does all of this happen? Look at the next phrase. He says, resist the devil firm in your faith. It happens by remaining firm in your faith. You do this by continually being strengthened in the truth, by committing yourself to being under the faithful preaching of the word of God and being faithful to serve in the church. You do this by hiding God's word in your heart and using it as the weapon that God has given it to be to us. You do this by your obedience to the truth. You resist by trusting God and continually casting your cares upon Him. You resist by fleeing temptation. You resist by daily putting on the full armor of God listed in Ephesians chapter 6. Listen to a parallel passage in James 4. It says, but he gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil. And I love this. He will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. When you resist the devil in the midst of his assaults, he will flee from you. Resisting the devil enables perseverance to the end, which is what we want, isn't it? Don't you want to make it? You want to get to that final day where you stand before Christ and he says, well done, good and faithful servant. That's what we want. Notice then the motivation given to resist the devil. Look at the end of verse 9. It says, you resist knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. The motivation is this. These believers who Peter was writing to were not alone in their suffering. You and I are not alone in our suffering. You and I are not alone when persecution arises in whatever form that happens now. You and I are not alone in our trials. You and I are not alone in, in suffering of any kind. You and I are not alone in our temptations. You're not alone. This is happening to our brethren across the world. Believers across the world are, are also facing his assaults, Peter says. We are motivated by the fact that believers are truly a band of brothers. Notice Peter's use of the word brethren there. We are truly a band of brothers in a war against the devil. There's great encouragement in that. That's why you come here. That's why you're a part of these things. That's why you come on Wednesday nights and you're a part of your small groups. That's why you're getting to know different people. You are in this together. That's the right use of that, by the way, not the nonsense that's been going on all the rest of these last few years. You are in this together, friends, Christians. You're not alone in this war. You're not alone in this battle. You are in this as a band of brothers and you know what the greatest part about this is? Is that we have already won the war because of Christ. We're just waiting for the full realization of winning and the eternal implications that are ours. And as we wait, we must fight. The battle's been won. The, the war has been accomplished. Christ took care of that. 
He defeated sin and death on the cross. And he defeated it for every person who will repent from their sin and place their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation. The battle, the victory is ours. But there are little battles still taking place as we live life in this world for the glory of Christ that we must fight because Satan is still alive and well. He hasn't been crushed in the sense where he's been put out of commission. Yes, he was crushed in the sense that his power was completely demolished at the cross, but we're waiting for the full manifestation of that when he will be pushed to the deepest, darkest part of hell to remain for eternity, to suffer the greatest that a person, an entity could ever suffer under the mighty hand of God. That's where he will be. We're waiting for that. For now, he's a roaring lion seeking to devour us, and so we fight with every bit of fight that we have to the glory of Christ, by the strength of Christ. Also, motivation comes in knowing that this same affliction is a mark of being a part of the same family, part of the same family, the family of God. Believers who suffer, believers who are persecuted, they're part of the same family. It's a mark. It gives us encouragement that we're part of God's family. I encourage you to take heart and to rest in that truth and to know this, that God will protect his children. And these verses 5 through 9 are the means by which we appropriate that protection in this life. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth of this text. Thank you that you don't leave us in the dark. Thank you that we don't have to make decisions according to our feelings and our whims and our impulses. Thank you that you have given us your word, which is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Thank you that you've given us the Holy Spirit who's in our hearts, guiding us according to the truth of the scriptures to live in a way that brings honor and glory to our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And thank you that you have already won the war. Thank you that as we fight in this life, we fight with the hope of one day not having to fight anymore. One day the temptations will be over. One day the suffering will stop. One day persecution will be unheard of. But until that day, Father, we ask you to find us faithful as your people seeking to stand firm in the, in the midst of suffering. We love you. Do this work in us in Christ's name. Amen.